0: Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message.
1: You know last week I shared a quote from DL Moody who was a great preacher from the 1900s who said this. He said, "God never made a promise that was too good to be true." Amen. How many of you like that? God never made a promise that was too good to be true. And what we've been learning about is the fact that God is a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. And that he set something in motion thousands of years ago And those promises that He made to different people in the Scripture thousands of years ago are still unfolding. And we're going to look at how those promises are unfolding in the Scripture here, in the story of Israel, but also in our own lives. And what I want to ask you to do today is to use your imagination. How many of you still have imaginations? The reason I ask that question is you know what happens to us the older we get, right? (laughs) Right, we start as children and we have amazing imaginations and then many times in the course of life we lose our imagination. Well, I want to encourage you to use, not lose your imagination today and to put yourself in the story and to think about yourself as one of the people of Israel. And so far in this series we've learned that God created a beautiful paradise called Eden without sin and that people chose to disobey his commands And that choice brought sin, decay, and death into His perfect world. We learn that all of creation came down when Adam and Eve fell. We've also learned that God chose a man named Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And that process brought forth a new nation. And that new nation was God's plan to continue this rescue story, this rescue story that would bless all the families on planet Earth and all the nations on planet Earth. And today we're going to look at the fact that God had 12 sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the 12, those 12 became 12 tribes that made up Israel, and how God set in motion a rescue mission to bring them out of Egypt and establish them as their own people. So before I actually speak anymore... I want to set up the message again with a Bible project video today, and we're going to look at what the Bible project has to say about the book of Exodus, and if you're wanting to know where we're going to be today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2, and so if you've got a Bible and you want to turn over there and mark your spot, you can. But here is the Bible project video that lays out Exodus chapter 1 through 18, and you get an overview of what God was doing in the story of the Exodus. Let's go ahead and show the video.
0: Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah but that's just the first half of the book.
2: The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay so let's start Back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember
0: is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed. The family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge
2: problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called
0: Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's
2: horrible he he disregards their humanity he brutally enslaves them and he even orders that all of the israelite sons should be killed by throwing them into the nile river he wants to wipe these people out he's the worst character in the bible so far
0: here's where we meet an israelite woman who wants to save her son and so she does throw him in the river but
2: safely in this little reed basket and pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses,
0: the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he
2: appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel.
0: So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, who's this God Yahweh?
2: And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work
0: even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue
2: them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this
0: word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are
2: really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and
0: defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this
2: lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this
0: substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly, as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of hearts. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that?
2: Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil. He's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story... ...is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible... ...as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time... ...which means
0: simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great. But the story quickly turns... Israelites start wandering in the desert they're tired hungry lost and you start to wonder what's God doing what were they saved for
2: and we learn the answer to that question in the very next story which ties the two parts of this whole book together
1: amen powerful story and I'm not going to be able to cover all of that obviously thank God right we'd be here till next week But what I am going to look at today is how God formed a nation and how He set in motion a rescue plan for that nation. And so my first point, if you're taking notes, is that God formed 12 sons into 12 tribes and then a nation in Egypt. And we're in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and we'll have it up here on the screen, but if you have a Bible, either a paper Bible or a digital Bible, look on with me. But verse 1 of chapter 1 of Exodus says this, these are the names of the sons of Israel Who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So these 12 sons had families, and when they went down into Egypt, there were 70 of them. Joseph was already there. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. At some point, I don't know if it was immediately or within a few generations, but at some point a new king was born and no longer did he give Joseph and his descendants favor, he forgot who they were and actually began to look upon them um, very negatively, look upon them as a threat. And it says here, he said to his people, behold the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, these slaves did, store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar, in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So we see here in this text, Jacob had 12 sons, they became those 12 12 tribes of Israel, they were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And that these 12 sons and their families went down to Egypt to survive a famine. There was a great famine in the land. And there was a special place in Egypt that Pharaoh had set aside for them called Goshen. And in this land, they could be shepherds and herdsmen. And here they were preserved from the famine that gripped the entire, that entire region of the world at that time. Now, their brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery in Egypt, became second in command over all of the Egyptian empire. God gave him a plan to store up grain and rescue the people under the control of Egypt. God used Joseph to rescue his brothers and their families and their father. He then brought them back to Egypt. And, live, and they lived their lives there under God's promise so God could preserve them from death and destruction and build a nation within a nation by that preservation. And we see this, um, we, we see the whole relationship with Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 50. It says that, After they came to him and they recognized he was Joseph, they came and bowed down to him. And I want you to see this in Genesis 50. It says, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now I want to stop here for just a moment, and I want to focus on something about Joseph's life that is a precursor to what he does with the nation of Israel. See, Joseph was sold into slavery, and Israel ends up becoming a slave in Egypt. Joseph is sold into slavery and then by his own brothers because they're jealous of him. And then later, we find out about Joseph that he's wrongly accused of rape. So then he's put in prison, and he spends years being forgotten, and it seems like God has abandoned him. It looks like he's been abandoned to people taking advantage of him and oppressing him for no reason. And then there comes a day through a series of providential events where Joseph is taken from the dungeon to the throne in a day. From the dungeon to the throne, he is removed from the deepest, darkest depression and place of feeling abandoned to being put in authority as the second over all of Egypt. And at that point, he now has authority to get back at his brothers. How many of you would have liked an opportunity like that? Think about it. For 13 years, you've been forgotten. For 13 years, you've been accused of rape you've been sold as a slave, now you're in a prison, you've been forgotten by everybody, and suddenly you have authority, and your brothers come to you, and they don't recognize who you are. And at this moment in history, Joseph has the opportunity to oppress his brothers, to make them pay for what they done, what they did, but he does exactly the opposite. And I really want to look at this because it's, I think it's really important for us. See, Joseph trusted that God was sovereign. Joseph trusted that God had allowed these things to happen because he had a bigger plan in mind. And he didn't take power into his own hand to do what God alone can do. And I just felt like uh, in the first service I felt this, and right now I I felt it as well, that there's some of you are in a position in your life and and you, you need to recognize that all the suffering you've been through, all the pain you've been through, the betrayals you've been through, the things that other people have done to you in your life, it's really easy to begin to get bitter and let that bitterness work in you. And without even realizing it, you can get murder in your heart or at least revenge in your heart. You can begin to think about, if I'm ever given the opportunity, I'm going to make them pay. But Joseph didn't do that. Joseph trusted that God was up to something. And here's the beautiful thing. God took all of those years of abandonment and suffering And being wrongly accused. And something worked in Joseph's favor. Something worked in his heart. And out of that, the scripture says, every place he went, whether it was in the house of Potiphar or whether it was in the prison, he was blessed by God and he became the leader. He went through a school of leadership development that was pain and suffering and difficulty. And some of you are in that school right now. And you're wondering, where is God? Why am I forgotten? Why am I going through this? And what I want to encourage you with is there's a backstory. There are things that work behind the scenes that you're not aware of. God is making some arrangements. And he will be sure that not one bit of your struggle and suffering will be wasted. He will take whatever little bit of the moisture of life is left in, in your life and he'll wring out good out of it. And he'll bring good out of it ultimately for your purpose. And that's what he did with Joseph. And think about it. Because Joseph was there and in that position of authority, he now had the ability to save his entire family and not only save his family, but prepare the way for an entire nation to be formed. is that good news? So these 12 sons, they multiplied into a great nation. Seventy family members went to Egypt. And over 400 years, they grew into a nation within a nation that most scholars think were probably somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. So from 70 to 2 to 3 million in in 400 years. And then Pharaoh made that great nation into a nation of slaves. And this Pharaoh came into power. He didn't know. He didn't respect Joseph. And and so he was threatened and he turned them into slaves and oppressed them. But here's the beauty. Through oral tradition, they would have known that God foretold that they would go through this because we learn in Genesis 15 verses 13 through 14 that God spoke to Abram and look what he says to Abram. This is 400 years before God says to Abram, now the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So 400 years before, God said, this is going to happen to you, be ready for it, but know this, I'm in control and I'm going to bring you out. And not only am I going to bring you out, but I'm going to bring you out with great possessions. I'm going to bring you out with spoil. Because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. How many of you believe that? Do you really believe that? How many of you believe God's working out even your pain and your difficulty for His good purpose? So that takes us to the second point. The great Old Testament Savior Moses is born and raised in Egypt. Now, I just want to tell you, Moses is a type of Jesus. And of all the figures of the Old Testament, Moses is the greatest. He was considered the greatest in Israel's history. He was the one that they looked to to be kind of the, the type of a Messiah that would come. He was the one who rescued his people out of bondage. And we learn about Moses here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. I want you to notice it. It says, when the child grew older, that's Moses, she, and the she here is his mother, his mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Now, I just want to tell you what happened is, is Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the river, and without knowing who it was, um, Moses' little sister was there, and she came forward and said, hi, you know, I've got a little baby here. I, I know this little baby's mom, or I know a woman who can be a nurse. And so Moses' own mom nursed him and brought him up until the age where he was weaned, and then they brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became his son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people... And he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So we look here in this story and we see Moses was born Hebrew, but raised Egyptian by Pharaoh's daughter. When Pharaoh had ordered that all the male children of Israel be killed at birth, Moses was preserved in a basket and sent down the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter found him and had Moses' mother nurse him. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, okay? So he would have been very familiar with Egyptian ways. Moses sought to rescue his people himself by killing an Egyptian. Moses came to know somehow that he was Hebrew. One day he sees an Egyptian taskmaster oppressing his people and he rises up and kills him. This was illegal in Egypt. This was murder. So Moses wasn't a good guy, okay? He was a murderer. And we need to understand that. A lot of times we look at these stories and we think, you know, Moses and these people in the Bible, they're our heroes. But the truth of the matter is they're a lot like us. They're a mess. Moses was a mess. And he had murder in his heart. And here's what I want you to see: is Moses already had a savior complex. Somehow he came to know that he was Hebrew, he was Jewish. And he sees a Jewish man being oppressed by an Egyptian taskmaster and he takes it into his own hands to be a savior and he strikes this man down. And that's often what we do, isn't it? We don't trust God to be the one who defends us. We take matters into our own hands. We fight for ourselves or for others and and we intervene often and do things that are left to God alone. You see, Moses had a, a sense of justice but he didn't respond properly. He didn't go to God with it. He didn't wait for God's answer. He took, it into, he took matters into his own hands, and in the process, he became a murderer. And can I just tell some of you, you're facing situations in your life right now, and you see something wrong. Maybe it's wrong in your marriage or your workplace. Or I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything. I'm just saying be careful that you do what God wants you to do. That you don't take matters into your own hands and react out of your anger, react out of your emotion, and immediately let the fire of that push you forward to do something you're going to regret later. And I'll tell you, Moses paid a heavy duty price. He had to flee Egypt because he tried to save his own people and he committed murder. And because of it, he spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Forty years in the desert going through the school of hard knocks. Anybody been in the desert for a while going through the school of hard knocks? So you know what Moses had to deal with. And then we see the next stage. And this is really where I want to focus my attention for the next few minutes because it's really the heart of the story. And that is Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. And look what it says here. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love the language here. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And I want to share with you today that God hears you. He hears your heart. He remembers His covenant with you. And he sees what you're going through, and he knows it. He gets it. So the king of Egypt died, it says. Throughout the Bible, the death of a king was often a a time of great change. One authority must die for another to come into play. Every time a king died, Israel, I'm sure, hoped that the new pharaoh would change his policy of oppression. But instead, they groaned because the slavery continued. Each new king brought hope, and yet each new king brought disappointment. You ever been there where you're just like, okay, you know, and we see this even in our country, right? Every time there's a new administration, depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on, some people have great hope, they're so excited, this new person comes in, he's going to change everything, and then that person ends their time in office, and another person comes in, and people are like, oh, maybe now it's going to change, and we go through that. It was the same in Egypt, and they were waiting to see what would happen. Egyptian sources attest to the practice of new pharaohs pardoning criminals. So Moses apparently benefited from this policy since he was not arrested when he returned to Egypt. He wasn't arrested for murder, so he was pardoned. And then it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. 400 years of slavery led to terrible suffering and pain. The groaning of the people was heard by God because He cared for them. It's as if the centuries of pain finally filled up God's cup of judgment against Egypt. I think it's also ironic that right here in our own country, slavery existed from the very discovery of the new world for almost 400 years. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that Abraham Lincoln believed that the Civil War and all the death and the destruction that was attributed to it was a judgment for slavery? He believed it was God saying, okay, Here's your consequences for enslaving people. And 620,000 people died in the Civil War. And 1.7 million casualties total came from the Civil War. It was the bloodiest, deadliest war we've ever been a part of. More people died in the American Civil War than World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, and what's been going on in the Middle East for the last 20 years. And it ultimately was around the issue of will we enslave human beings and hold them as property? And God said, enough. Isn't that ironic? And then it says the people of Israel cried out to God for help. They cried out to God. Sometimes we groan and sometimes we cry out, but God hears both. They cried out to God because they had no other place to turn. We often have many options So we don't learn to look to God in our difficulties and our afflictions. We trust everything but God until there's nothing but God left. You ever notice that? God is our last resort. I wonder, you know, if, if they were planning behind the scenes. I wonder if they had any secret meetings where they planned to rise up and try to overthrow Pharaoh in Egypt. But somewhere in that process, they recognized they were powerless and they had to turn to God. And the question in our lives today is, will we continue to try to manipulate our life or come up with our own solutions? Or ram it through or push or, or use control or anger? Or will we begin to look to God to be our deliverer and, and trust Him to come through for us and engineer circumstances behind the scenes that we can't control? You're a tough crowd today. Amen. And it says, God heard their groaning. To hear in the Hebrew language here means to accept and receive their groaning. He heard their groaning. He heard their pain. He heard not only their words, but their groaning. Sometimes the groans and the pain that we cannot put into words is louder than the words we would shout to Him in prayer. If you ever feel like you don't have the words to pray, remember that God even hears your groans. When all you got is, oh, I don't know what to say. Oh, God. If, if that's all you got, and, and you condemn yourself because you feel like, I don't know how to pray. Have you ever been in a place in your life, I have. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you carried such a burden and you were so wounded and you hurt so much that when it came time to pray, you had nothing to say. And then you beat yourself up. I don't even know what to pray. I'm not even praying right now. Well, let me encourage you. The stuff you can't say with words is said with your groans, your tears, your sighs, and your struggles. God heard their groaning. It reminds me that, you know, 14 years ago, my family and I took a sabbatical and seven weeks of it we spent in Mexico. I spoke practically no Spanish other than taco, burrito, enchilada, tortilla, and andale. It's about all I knew, right? Sarah, our daughter, had taken two years of Spanish, Stephen and Nathaniel at least one, and my wife Peggy had taken Spanish for two years in high school and one semester in college. All of them spoke much better Spanish than I did yet none of them were willing to talk to the locals because they were too embarrassed that they wouldn't do it perfectly. I ended up doing most of the communication. They would be behind me or beside me trying to correct me and feed me words while I spoke. I butchered the language. I caused quite a few smiles, laughs, and snickers from locals and my family. I know that on multiple occasions I embarrassed my wife and kids However, the people really appreciated my efforts. And they tried to help me and understand me. If people are that gracious and kind, how much more gracious and how much kinder is the God who loves us and wants us to open our hearts to Him? Don't worry about speaking perfectly or be afraid that because you didn't say it right, that God isn't listening. God hears your groans. He hears your mumbles. He hears your tears and the intent of your heart. See, prayer isn't about framing these perfect things that somehow are going to be like a rabbit's foot and they're going to you know, kind of open the key and, God, and unlock the key. The only real key in prayer is that you have faith in God. And even your faith only need be a mustard seed. There's a man in the Bible that he said, help my unbelief and God still healed his son it's not up to your faith, it's not up to your perfect words, it's not up to you doing it right. And sometimes in life, all you have is a groan, a sigh, or pain, and God hears it perfectly. And then it says, God remembered His covenant with their forefathers. He had made a special agreement with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He's a promise keeper. How many of you have family that went before you parents, grandparents, great-grandparents who you happen to know were people of faith. Let me tell you something. Those people had a relationship with God and prayed, and I'll bet God said some things to them. And I bet you may not even realize it, but even now, you are the recipient of promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises made to Jesus, promises made to the apostles, and promises made to your own foreparents who prayed and claimed and had promises from God that God would move in their family and work in their family. I want to encourage you. Let God know every once in a while, Lord, I don't even know what to pray, but I know you talk to the people who went before me. Lord, I claim whatever it is that you said to them. Amen. Amen. Because God will remember His promises. He's a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. And that takes me to my last point and where we end. And that is that God saw Israel and God knew. Verse 25, I love the language. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's all it says. Knew what? He just knew. You know, you know what that's like when you just know. You know, the statement's powerful. He sees, he knows, he sees our need to be rescued from the Pharaoh of Satan and sin. He sees our need for rescue from the slavery of addiction, of abuse. He knows the slavery that we go through. Some of us in in battles we have with mental illness or depression, the slavery of physical, emotional, and mental pain. He sees it and he knows it. In this section, we see that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew all about his people's stuff. He sees and he knows what you are going through. He sees it, he knows it, he feels it, he experiences it. You know, one of the beauties of what we call the gospel is that God in Christ became a man, went through a birth and an upbringing, and had to flee with his family, and was sought to be murdered, and then was raised in a normal home of that time, experienced what we experience. And theologians talk about this all the time, the idea that God is with us, the, the empathy of God in the gospel. And part of the empathy of God is the idea that when you are weeping, when you are suffering, You don't have a God that's out there looking down going, poor child. But the scripture teaches that you have a God who sits with you and weeps with you and suffers with you and hurts when you hurt and bears that with you, that he's right alongside you. He's not disconnected. He's not so transcendent. He's far away. He's with you in your stuff. That's the gospel. He knows us, and He loves us, and He sees us, and He knows. Amen.